Hear now the word of God. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, would you open the eyes of our hearts this morning? Your word is perfect, but we are not. We are riddled through and through with sin, and we often miss your truths that are right in front of us because of the blindness of our own hearts. So would you minister to our souls by your Holy Spirit through the means of your infallible and inerrant scripture this morning? We ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This book began by focusing on Jesus, and John focused a lot on Jesus. And and of course, this book doesn't lose that focus, uh, but today John is very interested in what others do about Jesus. Um, And you know, it is one thing for us to study theology, and we've done that so far. We've read that Jesus is the Word. We've read that he is the light, that he is the life. We've heard that he is the Messiah, that he is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And we've reflected on that and what that means. But in a very real sense, what do all of these things matter if we ourselves don't respond, if we ourselves don't react? How are we supposed to react to this news about this man who is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. You know, let's just say that John, uh, that, that all that John has, has said, uh, that all that John said Jesus is, is true. What of it? What does it matter if Jesus is very God of very God for our lives? What does it matter if he's the word made flesh? Where does the rubber meet the road? Well, we start to see the beginnings of an answer this morning because John the author has told us about Jesus and he's told us about John's testimony about Jesus. But now he gives us the first instance in his gospel of Jesus calling his disciples, changing lives, showing that connection between who he is and how that matters. And by the end of the passage, three men are following Jesus who didn't follow him before. So remember this, the Gospel of John is a book that John wrote 
Specifically because he wants you to be a disciple of Jesus. He wants you to follow Jesus. And this morning, I want to focus on Andrew. And primarily, I want to focus on Andrew because John records him doing three things that every disciple of Jesus ought to do. What are those three things? He beheld Jesus, he followed Jesus, and then he brought his brother to Jesus. All three of those things matter, and he's setting an example for us as disciples as well. So in a sense, you actually see this movement in the passage. You have, uh, you have Andrew receiving an external call, and then you have him responding, becoming a disciple, and then you have him turning outward, and you have him bringing other people to Jesus as well. So let's see if God doesn't use this passage to show us what a disciple is and also doesn't use it to shape us into being better disciples as well. So notice first, Andrew beheld Jesus. In the the text, it says in verse 35, it tells us how. It says, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. So this is a bit of a change uh, in the narrative, it was yesterday. In our time, time it was last week. Last week, John was talking to this crowd, uh, a group of unknown size. But today, John the Baptist is standing there with just two men. Andrew is mentioned as one of the men. We know that he's one of John's disciples, according to verse 40. The other disciple isn't mentioned by name, but... Uh, I feel safe in saying that this disciple, whose name doesn't get mentioned, is John the son of Zebedee, the author of this gospel. One of the things that you see in the gospel of John is that John is not shy about mentioning the names of people when they come to meet Jesus, especially the names of the disciples, because he knows all of them. And so this man who begins following Jesus isn't named. And what what happened here is it fits perfectly with the pattern of John. John does not want to write himself into the story. He mentions the other disciples, but he doesn't mention himself. He wants this to be a story about Jesus and what Jesus has done in other people's lives. He is not interested in becoming center stage in this book, and so he leaves himself out. But even if, even if I'm mistaken, even if this is just some disciple, John doesn't mention his name perhaps because he doesn't remember it or whatever, uh, we know this that John takes these two men, John the, John the Baptist takes these two men who are standing there with him and he points at Jesus and he points them away from himself. He says, behold, the Lamb of God. Now he's already mentioned this before. He's already told them about Jesus before. Now he's telling them again. John has told them that he is the one. This man is the one who's taking away the sin of the world. He's told them about how the Holy Spirit descended upon him. So the disciples here, they don't just blindly follow anybody. They behold this man that they have been well instructed on. But the real, maybe to me at least, the the story here is this. John isn't worried about losing followers. John is not invested in keeping followers. He's happy to lose them to Jesus. And the thing that I just immediately think is that you just need to hear this warning. If you ever meet a religious leader who's more interested in having you follow him than follow Jesus, run the other way. We've seen examples of that in world history, of course. 
But we see it in recent history, too. You know, one of my hopes for this church is that we continue to develop gifted leaders and teachers in the church. And there are some people who resist that kind of thing. There are, especially in our own culture, there is this obsession with the celebrity pastor where somebody gets a platform, somebody writes a book, somebody becomes a big name, and suddenly the church ends up becoming centered around this individual. And when you think of that church, you end up thinking about the pastor of that church. And in some ways, that's great if the word is what's being exalted and the Lord is the one that's being preached. But too often, churches become centered around that one individual, that one charismatic personality who's supposed to stand at the center. And it seems like every year we hear about ministries that collapse, churches that were built around this one person and now they don't exist anymore. This happened in Seattle. If you go to Seattle today, there is a church that was pastored by a big name pastor, and he was a big deal at the time. And now if you go there, you won't find that church in existence anymore. It's just completely gone. Why? Because this one leader fell apart. Everything hinged on him. Everything was about him. And that's destructive and dangerous for churches, which is one of the reasons why I'm so happy to be a Presbyterian. It's so good to be one elder among many in a church to know that the church does not hinge upon one person's personality. And to have elders in the church who were here long before the pastor ever came and will likely be here uh, long after the the pastor leaves, years and years and years from now. Um, But my hope for, for for you as a church, my hope for us as a church, is that we have strong leaders, that we have strong teachers and preachers. Uh, people who are competent in the word. It's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm always eager to share the pulpit with, with interns, with missionaries, uh, with, with other people. And why I think even my own vacations are good. Because I think it is important to reinforce for us as a church that this is not a church that centered, is centered around one person. This is not a, a three-ring circus with one person standing at the center. Uh, it might feel like a three-ring circus, but hopefully there's no one standing at the center. Christ is the one who's supposed to be at the center. He's the one that we're here for. But we as Christians are supposed to be pointing people. That should be our posture. That should be our instinct. People who say, don't look at me. Look over here. Set your eyes on Christ. And if people start to focus on you, turn their gaze away and fixate it on Jesus Christ. And I think John the Baptist models this beautifully for us. Because... He's not afraid of losing disciples. John is not invested in building his platform. John is not interested in having loads and loads of followers. If he was, he'd be like, uh, so you should tell other people to follow him. <laughs> you could picture him saying that to, to John and Andrew. Hey, the next time you see someone, let them know that that guy is the Messiah. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he points them at the Messiah and says, behold, the Lamb of God. And he's happy to see them go. He's happy to see them follow Christ. He says, behold, over there, not here. But the first step for Andrew, the first step for Andrew in becoming a disciple is to behold Jesus. You you can't be his disciple if you don't behold him and you can't behold him if nobody tells you about him. Jesus tells us that we have a duty to make disciples of all the nations. And so the way that we do this is we do this for our fellow church members. 
It's part of what Sunday school is, right? We, we help each other to become better disciples. Of course, we do this from the pulpit of the church as well. But the idea is that as church members, the church equips you so that you can take the gospel to your neighbors, to the people in your life who trust you, to the people in your life who you love and they love you. And they know that you want what's best for them. And so when you tell the gospel to them, you say, Jesus did this for me. And I'm a different person than I used to be. Maybe you didn't know me before, but let me tell you what I would be like if it wasn't for Jesus. And the idea is that we tell other people about the impact Christ has had on us so that the other people can know. And so that other people can know, where can I hear about him? And then you can point to the church and you can say, Jesus Christ fire truck <laughs> so that you can say so that you can tell people Jesus Christ is how I've experienced this change and so we have to do this for children of our church we make disciples outside of our church as well and we invite them in because that's God's intention that's the way he's going to build them up into being disciples and so before any of this actually takes hold though Andrew has to behold Jesus that's the first step in his discipleship Secondly, Andrew follows Jesus. He follows Jesus. It's an interesting interaction because John and Andrew and Jesus are all here together. And in verse 38, Jesus turns as they're following him. It says he turns and he says to them, what are you seeking? He doesn't say to them, whom are you seeking? He says, what are you seeking? And I think that's an important question. The fact that Jesus doesn't say, who are you seeking? He says, what are you seeking? He wants to know what they're looking for. Now, who knows what it is that immediately drew them to Jesus? We, we know that the ultimate answer is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is at work in these men. They are believing. They, they, they are following him. But what is it that immediately drew them to Jesus? You, you have to think, what is it that made them want to go? You know, maybe it's that John has been preaching about the Lamb of God taking away the sin of the world. And they, maybe they say to themselves, I want my sin taken away. Or maybe they're looking for their direction, their purpose, their meaning in life. They don't really know what they're doing just yet. And so they follow him. Or maybe they don't even know the answer to Jesus' question. They couldn't articulate what it is they're looking for. They don't know what they're seeking. But we as Christians, I'd be interested in hearing your answer to that question. Um, What is it, if you're a believer already, what is it that initially drew you to Christ? What is it that that initially, that, that thing in your heart, that thing in your life, that thought in your head, what was it, the thing that made you say, I want to trust in Christ? Now, we know ultimately the answer is the Spirit, but the Spirit uses these things in our lives. He uses emptiness and sorrow and even terrible circumstances to draw us to Him. Maybe, maybe you're lonely. Maybe you've, you've been seeking companionship. You want to know that you're never alone, even if you are alone. Jesus can supply that. Maybe you carry immense guilt. You've done wrong. And you want to know forgiveness. Jesus can supply that. Maybe you're tired of living in a world that's adrift at sea without purpose or meaning or value. Jesus can supply that. Maybe you want the security of knowing that you won't stand before God's judgment seat guilty. He can definitely supply that. 
The thing that first motivates a person to follow Jesus is not universal. There's no blueprint for this necessarily. Uh, I suspect if I went around the room and I went to, to all of you who are, who are believers and I asked you, why did you come to Jesus the first time? You might tell me a story of family tragedy, something that made eternity matter to you. Suddenly you cared about it. There would be this wide variety of answers. Um, and the answers are as varied as our lives are. And, and I've shared my story before, but, but uh, just to show how, how strange we can be. Um, my story of coming to Christ doesn't feel remarkable at all. I didn't believe. And then I studied God's existence. And I studied the reliability of the Gospels. And then I said, I need to listen to that book. And then I repented. And I followed Jesus. And so my story is not all that exciting in worldly terms. And at the same time, what is my story ultimately? A sinner's heart was changed and I followed the Lord. But it was intellectual curiosity that God used in my life. And I'm certain that's not the case in all of your lives and what it is that brought you to Jesus. What first drew you to Jesus? I would love to have you share that with me. I don't know that answer for all of you. Uh, but please do share that with me, maybe after the service. But, but Andrew and John don't answer Jesus' question. They don't say what they're seeking. Instead, they just call him teacher and they ask him where he's staying. And Jesus says, come and see. There's lots of good news in there. Part of it is, I'm going to give you an answer that you're looking for is what Jesus is telling them. But the good news keeps getting better because they say, we'll come see you later is essentially what they're asking. Where are you staying on their own and in their own time? The idea is they would come see him. But he says, come with me right now. Come with me right now. And so they go, they stay the same place he is. You know, it is difficult to get to know somebody out in public places. And so they get to spend time with Jesus. And perhaps they think to themselves, well, we'll get to see the real Jesus when we're with him in private. And and Jesus is one of those people who has absolute integrity. The person that you meet in private is the same man that you see in public. And so they stay with Jesus. They abide with Jesus. They spend time with Jesus. And it changes their lives. Whatever it is they were seeking... They are all in, and their lives will never be the same. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you may have found him. You may have found that you came to him for one thing. And you may find that he ended up giving you far more than you ever expected. And that your life is so much different than you ever would have anticipated all those years ago. And so Andrew discovers that. Andrew's story ends in a way that he never would have expected in this moment. All he was doing was spending time with his brother and spending time with his fellow disciple of John. But now here he is and he's following Jesus. So then finally, though, third this morning, Andrew brought his brother to Jesus. And I have to confess, in a, in a passage full of, of wonderful moments, it is hard not to put this one near the top. In verse 40... John, John the writer, introduces what happens next, and he explains, he says, One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now, I want you to think about this for yourself. How much time do you spend thinking about the disciple Andrew? How many sermons have you heard on the disciple Andrew? 
Um, how, how, much, how much time do you, do you ever wait, lay up uh, awake at night looking at the ceiling, wondering about the disciple Andrew? <laughs> now, maybe you've done that with Peter. Maybe you've done that with John. Maybe you've done that with some of the other disciples. But I suspect you have not thought much about the, the disciple Andrew. And I, I even thought that to myself as I was preparing this. I haven't thought very much about Andrew. And then I said, well, I'm going to do a study on Andrew. And I went to Accordance and I typed in the name Andrew. And I realized quickly, okay, now I know why I haven't spent very much time thinking about Andrew. And it's because he's only done two things in the entire gospel. He's only done two things in any of the gospels. The first thing that he's done that we know of is in Mark 13 on the Mount of Olives, Jesus is giving a sermon. He's giving a lesson. And then Andrew asks him the question, when will all these things be accomplished? That's his one thing. And then the only other thing is this passage here. Those are the two things that Andrew does in the Gospels. And maybe you think to yourself, you know, I feel bad for Andrew. Poor Andrew, not nearly as famous as his brother, Simon Peter. You know, Peter, Peter, Peter. Everyone's thinking about Peter, but what about Andrew? Well, we know Simon Peter for a lot of things, don't we? We, we know him because he walked on water. We know him because he was a disciple. He wrote two books of the Bible. He was a, a prominent leader of the church in the book of Acts. He's, he's famous for these things. But here's the problem with fame. You, you kind of get everything. You, you start to learn stuff about him that maybe you wouldn't want to know. Hey, he's, we also know him for, as somebody who stuck his foot in his mouth a lot. We know him as somebody who that one time Jesus called him Satan. That's not a great thing to have happen. Um, you could become quite infamous for that. He, he abandoned Jesus and then he lied about it and he did it with cursing. You can think of all the things in Peter's life that end up being downsides to that fame. So we know Peter, but sometimes knowing Peter doesn't always come off so great for Peter. So you get the warts and all. So no, Andrew is not as well-known as his brother. But think about this. Is it really so bad to have this be the one thing the Bible remembers you for? Andrew found his brother Simon, and he brought him to Jesus. That's not bad at all. And I think if there is one lesson in the life of the apostle, of the apostle Andrew, it's this. Good news is meant to be shared. Good news is meant to be shared. When I was in grade school, there was a kid two grades above me, and he was a bully in school. Uh, he was an angry kid, and uh, he needed Jesus in the worst possible way. And I was in grade school. I wasn't saved yet either, so it's not like I was some little saint or something. But I remember that when I was a freshman in high school, I came into high school, and I, I remember being like, okay, I need to look out for this guy. Uh, this guy's on the prowl. He's two grades older than me, but he's still around, you know. And when you're a freshman, uh, being a freshman stinks. And one of the things you're doing is just dodging the big kids and making sure you don't get beat up or humiliated in front of everybody if you can. And yet when I came to school as a freshman, he was a very different person than I was expecting and that I remembered because he used to be a bully. And... As the school year progressed, one thing became very clear. He is not a bully anymore. Instead, he would sit around the school and he would actually read his Bible. He would have it open on the steps. Kids would make fun of him. People would, would laugh at him, even in a small town. 
Just to give you a picture of the town I grew up in, my graduating class, I think, was 16 kids. So I did not go to a gigantic school. But this kid was developing a reputation for prayer. Uh, He would pray before he ate in the cafeteria. Kids wouldn't get to talk to him until he finished praying. You could be talking to him, and he would just close his eyes. It was like he had narcolepsy. And he would just... And you, you, he wouldn't listen to you for the next 10 seconds. And then he, boop, he'd be back up and he would start talking to you again. This is a very different man than we remember. This is a very different boy than we remembered before. He wouldn't get into fights anymore. He was quick to apologize. Uh, these things are huge, right? Um, one of my best friends growing up remembered being beaten up by this guy. He remembered being roughed up and having a bruise on his face and really being humiliated. And now... He really had become one of the most loving people in the school. In fact, I I almost want to say he was the most loving person in my entire school. Um, Things aren't always this dramatic, but he had become a Christian over the summer. And he was a radically different person. Now, a couple years later, I had become a Christian also. He was out of school by then. And I talked to him and I said, what happened? Tell me your story. And he said that what happened was his older brother shared the gospel with him. His older brother had become a Christian, and he said, my my older brother got saved. He told me about Christ. I got saved. He taught me how to pray. My brother taught me how to read my Bible, and he told me that I better go to church, and it changed my life. That was his explanation to me. He said, my brother brought me to Jesus, and every person in my school could tell you that it was true, and they knew that it was true, that this guy's life had been changed And now he is a missionary overseas. That's why I'm not mentioning his name right now. He would love it if I mentioned his name, but I'm not going to. Just pray for my friend. But in my friend's case, he was saved because his brother brought him to Jesus just like Andrew. And I think this is an excellent reminder that our families are places for us to disciple each other. Um, Andrew made a disciple of his brother. Uh, Iron sharpens iron. They were family. And so for them, from this moment on, the thing that knit them together wasn't their common hobbies. It wasn't their flesh and blood even. It was Christ who is deeper than body, deeper than flesh and blood. And this is a question for all of us parents. Is your family a place where disciples are made? Is it your primary focus? Um, when your kids come home from church, do you ask them about Sunday school? Ask them about what they've been studying lately. Uh, ask them about what they thought of the sermon. In other words, you, you can start off spiritual conversations. You can have them very easily just by talking about the thing you already have in common. If you were in church together, you can talk about what you saw and what you heard. Um, and here's a question for kids. I don't usually address my sermons directly to kids, but if you're a, a kid in the congregation... I want you to think about this. Do you encourage your siblings to follow Jesus? Do you ever ask them what they read in their Bible? Um, Do you ever encourage them that they they could read their Bible? Um, Or if they're really little, do you offer to read it to them? Um, Try asking them what their Sunday school class was about. Or if you were in the class with them, ask them what they thought of the Sunday school class. In other words, generate spiritual conversation because, and this is true for parents, when you engage your children in spiritual conversations, it doesn't just show your, your children that you care about what they're learning. Uh, it doesn't just show them that, uh, that they need to remember because they might get quizzed on it. Um, but it actually shows them what matters to you. It shows them what matters to you and what's most important to you. 
So ask them, engage them in conversation. You know, whether you are a teenager or, or a kid or a parent, you can help your family grow spiritually by talking about spiritual things. So, so don't be content to be superficial. Go deep with your loved ones. They need it and so do you. In this passage, Jesus calls three disciples to himself. And I want you to notice this. All three of them are called to Jesus, and none of them are called directly by Jesus. John and Andrew came to Jesus because of the testimony of John the Baptist. Peter came to Jesus because of the testimony of his brother Andrew, who came to Jesus because of the testimony of John the Baptist. And so I want you to notice this. God's plan... And God's ordinary way of bringing the gospel to people is through other people, not through some direct connection, some direct revelation or anything like that. Um, And one of the interesting things in recent years has been that Germany, especially the Lutheran church and churches in Germany, have been reporting that refugees from Iran have been going into Germany and they're going to churches and they're saying, I was told to come to this church By a vision of Jesus. Now, do I know for 100% sure that these people are having visions of Jesus? I do not. I do not know. But one thing I, I, I would suggest is there may be extraordinary circumstances like this where someone knows that they need to go and hear the gospel in a certain place. One of the things that strikes me about these supposed visions that the Germans have been telling us about is that they're not being told the gospel in the dream. They're being told where they can hear the gospel, and then they're going to hear the gospel. And so even then, God is still planning for these people to hear the gospel message through another person. He doesn't tell them the gospel in the dream. He tells them where they can hear the gospel. But in our passage this morning, the thing that sticks out is that the normal way that someone comes to follow Jesus is through the testimony or the invitation of someone else. And notice this, in both of these cases, it's someone who knows them that points them to Jesus. More than likely, the connections you have in your life, friends that you know, family members that you know, they're going to be the reason why you end up going to church or you're going to be the reason why they end up going to church. At least statistically speaking, that's the thing that makes the difference. Simon Peter followed Jesus because of his brother. Do you have a brother? Do you have a sister? Do you have a friend? Do you have a neighbor that you should be reaching out and serving like Andrew does? I hope you see this this morning that Andrew goes on a journey here. He is not the same person by the end that he was at the beginning. He receives the external call. He hears the gospel. Have you heard the call to follow Jesus? Whenever you hear the gospel preached, you are yourself receiving that external call, that thing that you need in order to come to be a disciple, that, that, that message that says, here is Jesus, be his disciple. He is Jesus, trust in him, repent, follow him. You cannot believe the gospel if you've never heard it. And then Andrew responds to the gospel by following Jesus. Have you have you begun to follow Jesus? Have you taken that first step of saying, you know, I'm, I'm not just a church visitor. I'm not just a child in the church. I'm not just a, a visitor or a regular attender. I'm actually following Jesus in my life. I don't care how long you've attended church for. Are you a disciple? 
I think for most Christians, it's tempting to let the journey as a disciple stop there. Well, I'm a Christian now. Um, I've went through the communing members class now. I guess I'm a disciple. Now I have peace. I have forgiveness. I've been washed from my sin. There's nothing more to do. We can make that mistake. And the error that we usually will drift towards is the error of thinking that once we started to follow Jesus, we no longer have to be concerned about whether we're disciples. There's one writer who says we really need to rethink how we think of discipleship because discipleship isn't just deciding to follow Jesus once. It's re-following Jesus every day. And the reason why we need to re-follow Jesus every day is that we go off track so very easily. I find this way of thinking about discipleship to be helpful because, to be honest, I feel like I'm not a very good disciple. That is not mock humility. I feel like I'm not a very good disciple. Um, I might be able to preach and lead worship and, and teach and do public ministry, but that doesn't make me a good disciple because I wake up each and every day. And what do I want to do when I wake up? I want to serve myself. I usually wake up and my first thought for the day is, how can I do what I want to do today? And sometimes my second thought is not follow Jesus. I'm an excellent disciple of Adam, not always a very good disciple of Jesus. And maybe you feel that way. Maybe you felt that way when you woke up this morning. You said, I'm going to church, but I don't want to. I want to do me today. I want to do what I want to do today. Maybe that went through your head. And if you feel like a disappointing disciple, well, I want you to know this. The gospel is here for that. (laughs) The gospel is here for people who feel like disappointing disciples to Jesus And maybe you feel guilty because, yes, you want to be like Andrew and tell others about Jesus, but you just have not brought yourself to tell that person about Jesus. You feel like you can add up all your failures every single day. And and so you, you could punish yourself, right? You could say, well, I'm just a bad disciple. I'm going to beat myself up. And so you pepper yourself with anxiety and you chastise yourself and you beat yourself up. But there's another answer. Bring it before the Lord. Admit that you are an imperfect disciple and tell God, I need your grace today because I have failed you again as a disciple. I want to follow you again and commit to following him today. Discipleship is not about perfection and it is not about putting on a good show for people to see. It's about being picked up by Jesus each and every day and starting anew and re-following him each morning. And here's what makes this good news. And you see this in our reading. The way people sometimes think of religion is they think there's ceremonies, there's rules, there are prayers I'm supposed to say, I'm supposed to give an offering. Maybe if I do all these things, I'll find peace with God. Now, I hope that's not what you hear from this church. But it is what people sort of lazily think about religion. When they think about what religion is, they think it's mostly about being a good person. But what happens here in our passage is we discover that the good news isn't a list of rules or abstract principles. It is bound up in a person. Andrew and Peter and John don't end up following a rule or saying a prayer or doing some sort of ceremony. What do they do? They follow a person and they re-follow him each day. So here's the thing about Jesus. He is a person to be loved and followed. Christians will often say, and this is a bit of a cliche, we hear it so much, but they say it's not a religion, it's a relationship. Well, that is a bit of a cliche because it actually is a religion. (laughs) 
It is a religion by every definition of the word, but it probably isn't the kind of religion that you expect. Because it is about a person. Think about this. In Islam, God is distant, far away. Maybe he'll forgive you, maybe you won't. In Mormonism, God is very distant. Literally, he lives on another planet very far away. He's an exalted man. In Buddhism, there is no God at all. There is no personal being in the universe at all. Everything is just eternal being. Um, and even in Judaism, Yahweh is, is distant and fearsome. And in all of these religions, you find peace by doing the ceremonies and following the rules. And what do Peter and Andrew and John find this morning? They find a God who says, come and see. Spend time with me. Personally follow me. Look at me. Talk to me. Examine the evidence of who I am. And tell other people about me too. That's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, I can stand up to your scrutiny. Come with me and see who I really am. We were made to know this person. We were made to follow this person. We were made to keep following this person and we were made to tell others about him too. So let's do that. Let's do what we were made for. Let's follow this person. Let's share this person because the world around us is starving to hear it whether they admit it or not. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the ministry of John the Baptist and the example that he was to us. He was willing to lose his own followers so that they would follow your son. Would you protect us from being self-obsessed and self-involved? Help us to be pointing people who send others to you. Would you stir our hearts up to be people who freely, gladly, joyfully tell others about the good that you've done for us. Would you send your spirit among us so that we are evangelistically minded and would give anything to see other people come to know your son. Finally, would you work in the hearts of your people so that we aren't merely practitioners of an abstract religious system, but so that we are fixated on and delighted in the person of your son. We ask these things this morning through your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.